0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Okay, I'm speeding on my end. Speeding. You got waves? I got waves. Waves of sound? I'm breaking the waves. <laughs> Speaking of waves, we're about to set sail. Uh. On the sea of love. <laughs> We're about to set sail. Remember that line from the Love Shack? I got me a car. It's as big as a whale and it's about to set sail.
1: Oh, yeah.
4: <laughs> a little old blaze.
3: A little old blaze? All right, everybody ready? Here we go.
4: Talk with me, Justin and Corey Let's talk a film that I own on Blu-ray Harold Becker's 1989 Sea of Love Al Pacino took four years off after a string of 80s movie flops, he made his comeback with this little film, Sea of Love. Ellen Barkin is smoking hot, but every guy she dates fucks a pillow, then gets shot. It- is she the killer, or is she not? We don't know, Richard Jenkins, John Goodman, and Samuel L. Jackson are back on the pot again. Today on Cinema Possessed, we're talking. Sea of love that was pretty oh Thanks. that was
1: beautiful
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed Podcast. My name is Jack Bishop. And my name is Justin Nijem, And with us, as always, is the William Hickey of this podcast, Corey Clifford.
2: William Hickey.
3: He's Al Pacino's decrepit old dad.
2: How dare you? I thought you were at least going to do Gruber, Richard but Jenkins. I say that
3: because when you interject, uh-huh. it's always poetry. <laughs> The camera slow zooms.
0: <laughs> I keep my heart high up on the shelf, and wait for my lover's arms to bring it down.
1: So, he sounds kid. like Gilbert Godfrey.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, I, know I was trying to think of what he sounded like.
3: He's from—I know him from *A uh, Christmas Vacation*. He's uh, Uncle Lewis, who you know he's with the two oh, older yeah. people. Oh yeah, I
2: forgot. Yeah, he is.
3: He says, uh, "They say, uh, Aunt Bethel, do, do you want to say grace?" And she goes,
0: "Grace." She died 30 years ago. And he goes, not that, Grace. The blessing. Classic.
3: (laughs) Everybody remembers. That, yeah, right. I yeah, think a lot of people probably do. I think there's probably a lot of listeners out there nodding along, going, "Yep, that's that's what the they classic said.
2: line." Everybody remembers from <laughs> Christmas Vacation is that one.
3: Did uh, Corey already? Did we have a Richard Jenkins yes, on the podcast? Yes, did that's it, why Corey I thought was, he was gonna do that. Yeah, again. Corey has already been labeled the Richard Jenkins of the
1: podcast. I know I thought should but through. comedy
2: is about callbacks, so I thought I, I was thought, gonna get a yeah, callback.
1: I thought that would have been stronger. <laughs> yeah, thank well, you. I don't want to
3: repeat. My hope is that somebody will go through and like tally all of the labels that Corey has gotten to flesh out the character of Corey Clifford, you got to always find something new. And there's always something new to discover about you, Corey. I feel like I'm like
2: walking into a (laughs) trap or something. I think I'm (laughs) I'm the
3: one who's walking into the trap every episode that I do these. Uh, And each week we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today. And in the end, we will decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be forced to simulate nasty sex onto a mattress and be shot in the back of the head while Phil Phillips' Sea of Love plays on vinyl. Beautiful song. Not a bad way to go, if you ask me. Mm. It's a good ass song, but yeah. If but you you're get being the angle down. right on that mattress, you could probably edge yourself
1: into climax right before Jack, death. That's I don't think. I don't think they're able to like really get into it. You know. Yeah, I mean? they're
2: crying, like, begging for their lives.
1: Well, that sounds like a personal problem.
3: That's a YP, not an MP. That's Jack's favorite phrase. Where does it come from? He just made it. up. No, no, no. I, mm. It's on. It's in Boogie Nights. Oh. Well, they... Uh, mm. It's when Dirk Diggler has like become a recording artist, and they record the songs, but the engineer won't give them the masters so that they can go buy drugs with it. And it's Robert Downey Sr. who plays the engineer, and they're like, we need those masters! And he goes, hey, that's a YP, not an MP. I just always thought that was a good line. <laughs> mm. <laughs> if you could choose a different song to get your head blown mm. off to, <laughs> what would it
1: be? Higher Love. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Steve by Steve
3: Wittwood.
4: Think about it. <laughs>
1: I think
3: mine would be probably Inya's Orinoco Flow. Mm-hmm.
4: Sailor Because I
3: already feel like I'm transcending into heaven. For some reason, the it. first yeah.
2: song that came to my head was
5: down with the sickness. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. <Wow>. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one, too. That's a good one. By uh,
1: Johnny Cash's Hurt.
4: Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Just something real sad. That's so
3: sad. My dad's go-to answer. Anytime a question like that would come up, he would always say a Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. No matter what, oh that would be his go-to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin, let's not keep the audience waiting. What movie are we talking about today? Well,
1: we've been hovering around 1987 for a while. We have. We've been kind of back week, and forth, 87 and 89. We're going to a, back to 89 to check out Sea of Love.
4: one of you guys you caught a good one based on taxpayer back the head in his own bed your guy put an ad in the singles magazine right there's
0: some psycho woman out there killing guys i know how we catch her we put our own ad in we set up dates with 30 40 50 of the ladies who answer we take them out some restaurant some bar get their prints on a wine glass bingo she's dropped i don't believe in wasting time on this kind of stuff you know what you know and you go with it you go with what I believe in animal attraction. I believe in love at first sight. I believe in this. No offense, but you never did get her prince, did you? She's not the shooter. I have done some desperate, foolish things.
5: You mean like being here with me? You're a good man.
4: You never know. I always know. What are you, You just met her. What are you looking for?
0: suspect, Frank. Just walk away. This is getting out of hand. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? What are you looking for?
2: That's a good trailer. That was a
3: good trailer. It did a thing that we we now see all the time happen in trailers, which is where they take the song and they sort of intercut it a little bit into the trailer music, which I feel like wasn't done that often. In 1989.
1: Now it's mm. done on every trailer.
4: Come with me, my love.
1: I feel like you could easily take that music out and put in like something from like Rush Hour, <laughs> uh, some buddy cop movie. Yeah, <laughs> because and the accents are. Sh- turn it into yes, a comedy. I like, was thinking plot- that too. <laughs> The plot, like, especially the part where Al Pacino is like, we're gonna take out
4: 35
1: women on dates. Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. (laughs) The scheme of two frat boys. Yeah. 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 Coming up with something stupid.
2: John Goodman, to me. Is the breakout? He star is of this
1: so movie. good in this movie. Hot he off steals
2: of, all the scenes. Hot to off me. of
3: Raising Arizona too. Uh, He's it wasn't so funny. It wasn't his next movie, but it was probably his biggest movie. after I also Raising think
2: Arizona. John Goodman's really handsome in this movie. Yeah, like it's the most handsome I've ever seen him.
3: Mm-hmm. He's just so charismatic. Yeah, too. he really. They is. They make a
1: great team. Yes. Yeah, I feel like. Nobody thinks about them when you think of cop movies, mm-hmm. uh, like good pairings in uh-huh. cop movies, you know, yeah. like 48 hours kind of thing. Well, because they don't but, even
3: do the normal thing where it's like, normally in a buddy cop movie, they fight each other at first and then they learn to love each other. They just kind of love yeah, each other that's instantly. That's what I love about the this. Instantly. <laughs> I just met this guy. I just met this guy. It's like j- more of a love story than, than Al Pacino and yes. Ellen it is, I
1: That's what I was thinking. I was like, see if love is, it has so many like brilliant little themes and things that t- kind of tie into mm-hmm. each other in a really w- w- neat way. And one of them I noticed, I was like, this is also a romance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they have uh, their own little thing going. When John Goodman nice.
2: starts singing to him and that first Great. night they meet. Is which just, feels like uh, a
3: Top Gun moment. Like yeah. It feels like the scene in Top Gun where they all start singing. Maybe it was sort of a prerequisite at this time to like, you got to have a scene like that. But it works so well in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, this movie from a plot standpoint is pretty by the book, kind of your standard average thriller. But what's always struck me about the movie are the details. Like it's like a standard cop movie that has all these really interesting details smattered through it from top to bottom that I think makes it transcend into a much better than average.
2: I think that's also the
3: actors too. And the actors too, yes. The, The the performances are all great. But it's you know, it's like I love the dynamic between Al Pacino and Richard Jenkins. <laughs> it's such an odd, interesting detail that like his wife left him for his this. partner. Yeah, it, it's, it's his partner, and the way the movie doles out the information for that is, I think, really compelling and interesting. I, I love the whole midlife crisis stuff going on throughout the whole movie. I like that it's an adult movie. You know, uh-huh. like this is like forty-year-old problems. He's kind of having to get back into the dating scene, but he's also hitting his twenty-year mark as a detective and he sort of hates himself and the movie like I think takes time out of the procedural to like give you little moments of that and little moments of uh, there was like a lot of little sweet moments too like the stuff with the when they're doing the speed dating and the, the older woman yeah and the old woman and he feels bad because she realizes uh-huh. that he's yeah. gaming in some way and that he doesn't he's not really into her you assume she thinks it's because she's old well also too he, he
1: sucks at fucking dating <laughs> yeah too. like yeah. He, she can see right through him mm-hmm. you know like she into the point where even before he she watches him date multiple women yeah. she says you know i know you're not gonna yeah you won't call me again you can just um, feel it and he he, he kind of has this like energy this energy of he's distracted he's unfocused he's just saying yeah Um, you know, also to the way that John Goodman dates, John Goodman actually like lands (laughs) someone and is better. better. (laughs) Who, when Um, we get to
2: that part, that actress also steals the scenes. That's
3: another one, too. Mm -hmm. Like the woman who shows up at the victim's apartment. Mm -hmm. I love that sequence, too, because it's just kind of this sweet little moment where she doesn't even know the guy. Yet she feels kind of devastated by it. The fact that the movie kind of takes the time to like focus on little things like that are, I think, what make the movie special.
2: Absolutely. And this movie also taps into something that, like, again, we've talked about this in past episodes that, like, we have not experienced. But the Mm -hmm. whole time I was thinking, I was like, God, like, it must be so as a woman, like, Exciting sure but also like scary. Like the first time you're like going to some guy's house like yeah. you would be like is this dude about to murder me? Mm-hmm, yeah. Like be spooky.
1: Well it's just interesting to that a, a movie is like flipping, you know, the trope of that scared woman and making Al Pacino scared. Yes, I love it. But in reality, the whole movie, she has every reason to be afraid. (laughs)
5: Yes, (laughs) he's an alcoholic cop, like Like,
3: the worst. Who at this point in his life hates women like the way he talks about his wife with such vitriol too and the, even the first time he meets ellen barkin when she kind of tells him off he like calls her a bitch under his breath and stuff he's got a scary energy even though the movie goes to great lengths to 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 like let you know he's a good guy he's just kind of going through
1: it i think the winner of this movie to me is the screenplay yeah. like i think i don't have i i don't look at much in the movie and see, like, a necessarily, like, you know, the stamp of a of a a director. I don't see a bad director. I don't see a great director. Yeah, I see a director who's doing their job perfectly. But the script to me is what mm-hmm. stands out as like they they mm. they had a problem and they solved the puzzle perfectly yeah. every step. Of yeah, the way. you know, even like this is a movie to me that also had, I hate to keep bringing up. Save the. Cat I was shit, just about to but-
2: say that. Justin.
1: <laughs> like if you're if you're solving for Save the Cat, uh-huh. they did it like pretty damn. For pretty those who Yes,
2: perfectly. I even yeah. said it to Jack when we were watching it. I was like, there's our Save the Cat yeah. moment.
3: For listeners who may you're bound to have heard us joke about Save the Cat moments a thousand times on this podcast, but we may as well just sort of clear it in case somebody's confused. There's a book written by a guy named Blake Snyder called Save the Cat, that is basically a how to write a screenplay book. And he has all these kind of hard and fast rules for writing the perfect screenplay. You got to hit this point by this page and this point by this page. And one of the big defining rules is that you got to have a save the cat moment for your lead character, which is basically represents a moment in which they do something that gets you to immediately like them, to immediately side with them. It's usually a good deed. You know, it's a saving the cat, literally, if they can sometimes save a cat, and that will make you like them. And uh, this sequence that happens in this movie is the example that blake snyder uses in the book save the cat so it is the that's quintessential funny. i want to save I the cat go that's funny moment. i
2: didn't know that yeah um, <laughs> wow. because at the beginning you are like oh i don't want to root for these cops yeah. and then
3: but then they get they get you
2: yeah then they get you
3: Uh, Harold Becker is the director of this movie. Harold Becker, I think it can be a really good director if he has a good screenplay. Like one of my favorite movies of his is The Onion Field, which I saw a few years ago and became obsessed with. And that's based off of a book by Joseph Wamba. And I think it's an incredible movie. Uh, I think he's really good with characters. I don't think he cares much about screenplay plot devices as much, which means if he gets kind of a weird screenplay, he'll just, he won't fix it. He'll just kind of let, like, he also did Malice which is a very fun movie with Alec Baldwin and Nicole Kidman, and that Aaron Sorkin wrote that. So the dialogue is good, and the acting is really good, and I think the character work in that movie is good, but the plot stuff is wackadoo in that movie. Do you remember watching that with me, Corey? Well, no. Malice is the one where where Alec Baldwin says he's a surgeon, and he goes Oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. You I sit do. here and tell me I'm playing God. I am God. Yeah. Great thriller, but... I remember we were watching the movie and you were like, this movie's kind of dumb. Too. Yeah. And it is like some of the plot stuff is really dumb. Harold Becker doesn't really care about that stuff. And so he'll let the dumb stuff just happen. And sometimes it can hurt the movies a little bit. But if he has a good screenplay, he will find all the good character stuff within it and and transcend it. Um, and he certainly does that with this movie. Who wrote it?
1: Richard Price.
3: Yes. And he was actually a novelist. And wrote a novel, not called Sea of Love. I forget what the novel was called, but it's not a murder mystery thriller, but it's about a guy who's putting ads in singles uh, papers, and it sort of is exploring that.
2: Did he write more screenplays after this?
1: He wrote Color of Money.
2: Whoa. He's a
3: pretty big writer. He wrote Ransom. Wow. A
1: couple episodes of The Wire. He's from the Bronx, so that kind of explains. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: Another aspect of this movie? I think this movie is sexy as hell. For sure. This is an erotic thriller. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you both. This applies to both of you. What percentage of this movie would you say you were rock hard?
2: Oh, my God. God. Turn off the podcast immediately, please.
1: Sometimes you act in the way that I would expect me to act (laughs) on a bad day. (laughs) You possessed me.
3: (sighs) no but I'm for real Like, I, uh, yes, as far as erotic thrillers go where sexy. do you rank it do you feel like this is a sexy movie yes
1: it is sexy it is sexy but just to play devil's advocate like you know I know you're you're making conversation <laughs> Ellen Barkin is super fucking hot um, can't argue with you there but I, hell Pacino just kind of doesn't feel sexy at all well, you've, to me I like, think you've said this I before get, right like you I have said a it before. Pacino I can get on board cause I like what you said but he's actually 49 when he shot this movie. And I love older people's stories. Yeah. I don't need to like, I don't need my stars to be beautiful. I I don't want them to be beautiful mm-hmm. all the time. So it's like, I don't, you know, Al Pacino. Oftentimes we see in this era men who are supposed to be, you know, equals to these sexy hot women they're right. playing opposite against. But the, in in no way in real <laughs> life would they ever bag... <laughs> these people I think are- it is so- though
2: I think it's so because Al Pacino has a swagger about him that is like it's that uh, I don't even know how to describe it in a way that makes sense but like wh- like he can get away with saying things like uh, doll face and stuff like that, like though like it's like that type of like era where I'm like, oh, this is like normally I'd be like, ooh, you're so gross, but something about like when he's doing it, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I, I, I guess I am a doll face. Like, I think what?
3: with Pacino too comes the history of Pacino. You know, like I think from a celebrity standpoint, he's Michael Corleone from The Godfather, which is.
2: You yeah, know, but that means nothing to me.
3: I well, but he's also Tony Montana from Scarface. I know, I know, you know, he's got
1: the. He's not a hot guy. They would never. People in this era, producers of this era, era would never dare to put a woman opposite Al Pacino who looked like Al Pacino. Sure. Oh, of true. course. True, true, true. true. And course. that's
3: the time. I think the times back then The times uh, back then that's Male the times now. That's just But being no, a woman I don't I think Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, yes, from a woman's standpoint. I think, yeah, they've gotten worse. Yeah, I, I know, think from the guys a, have gotten worse. <laughs> I think from a male standpoint things are different now too, though. I don't think we ca- Cast people who look like Al Pacino as, as lead actors anymore. Yeah, we especially cast in romantic boys up. like Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, but I
1: think hey, the,
2: you have to stop the hate.
3: <laughs> I'm less, sorry. I'm less, sorry. To me, it's less about the Chalamets and it's more about the like unrealistically like steroided out buff superhero guys yeah. that are casting yeah. everything. No,
1: all of, I got honestly every representation of uh, a human. You know, <laughs> uh, yes, a human in a movie, in a Hollywood movie is repulsive yeah. to me.
3: But in the 90s, um, you could. I think most of our big star lead actors were the Jack Nicholsons, the Al Pacinos, who like had a little fat around them, had a little wrinkle on their faces, and it was, they were considered sexy. I think we had yeah. a very similar no,
1: conversation about that. Wolf. I,
2: I would say, though, I that. I prefer that, that, my that's...
1: characters to have Al Pacinos drag through the hedges kind of yeah. look.
2: I would say, though. That's somewhat changing now, I guess, like in TV, maybe not movies, but like in TV. And I can't really say this about Adam Driver now, because Adam Driver now is like the most ripped man ever. But like when he was like in Girls and stuff, like he's not like you don't look at him and are like, oh, my God, he's so hot. Yeah. Or or like the guy, the main guy of the bear
1: mm-hmm. who like Jeremy. Yeah, Allen White. yeah. yeah. I feel like maybe he, he's t- fucking hotter than Al Pacino.
2: Well and they're, all, <laughs> but they're both younger. younger. He's they're
1: younger. They're both younger too yeah. that's a big part but of he, it too. He has that sad he he's like he's got a um a sad tragicness yeah. behind his eyes that I think people find sexy. Yeah. Yes.
3: Well there was that inter- plus the
1: character. Yeah. There's for an interview
3: sure. going around right now with Adam Driver where the, the guy it's a male interviewer, an older guy who for whatever reason starts asking him about like, you know, you have a really unconventional face and like did that <laughs> ever make you worried? Did that ever like think you wouldn't get parts? Like he literally pulls up a picture of Robert Redford and <laughs> oh says, God. like, Did you ever look in the mirror and say, I wish I looked like Robert Redford? Redford, and did you ever think that that was going to hurt your chances of getting roles? And it's like Adam Driver is not ugly; he's no. still extremely attractive. He doesn't look like Robert Redford, but it doesn't mean he's less sexy than Robert Redford. Uh, and, but and he has to be sort of humble and be like, "Well, yeah, who who doesn't want to look like Robert Redford?" Of course, yeah, I had similar weird, thoughts like weird that. Question. But it was like extremely strange uh, question to be asking somebody who is, I think, pretty traditionally good-looking uh, in most senses of the word. But he doesn't look like a doll. He doesn't look like a pretty boy, which a lot of actors nowadays do look Mm -hmm. like. Speaking of Al Pacino, I mentioned in the song that he was coming off of a string of flops when he made this movie, and he actually hadn't made a film in four years because of it. He did uh, Cruising in 1980. He did a movie called Author, Author, which I've not seen, but wasn't a big movie. He did Scarface, which we talked about on the pod. Made a decent amount of money in box office, but was like basically critically panned across the board. Particularly, Al Pacino's performance was panned. It didn't really become celebrated until years later as like a cult hit. And then the sort of straw that broke Pacino's back was this movie called Revolution, <laughs> which was a huge flop, made no money, was a disaster. And at the same time, he was also. Once again, critically panned. He did an accent in that movie that uh, people were just relentless to him. And so he stepped away from making films. And people, I think, thought he was going to retire. He just did a bunch of theater in those four years. And so this movie, Sea of Love, was um, kind of a comeback for him. And it ended up doing very well. And he was critically praised for his performance in it. And it totally brought him back. Right after this, he then went on to do Dick Tracy, Godfather 3. Frankie and Johnny, Glengarry Glen Ross, Scent of a Woman, and Carlito's Way, all within like the next three years. So he came Mm -hmm. back in a big way and started... I mean, he won Best Actor for Scent of a Woman, but people thought he he sucked at this point in time. And so it's interesting that this movie that kind of on paper is like a standard procedural erotic thriller was the one he kind of chose to step back into Mm -hmm. the game with... um, Obviously yeah. it worked. It was a smart decision, but it's kind of an interesting uh odd I mean, one. This
1: feels like pulp like a B movie, pulpy B movie with triple A value. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Like,
3: Which are my favorite kind of movies. They're my yeah. favorite kind of movies. Like I love movies that kind of have their foot in both worlds. This feels like the perfect TV watch. You know, this should be coming on cable and it'll entertain you the whole way through. But like you said, it's elevated. It's it's the game has stepped up across the board.
2: You don't think say. it's like a little too sexy for TV? Well, like, you would have to cut a could, lot. Yeah. You would
3: have to cut a lot for sure, because yeah, too hot. Too hot for TV. It may be too hot for this podcast, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to sail a little further <laughs> into
1: Sea of Love. Hope we don't drown. Ooh. <laughs>
3: Welcome back to Cinema Possessed, and we're talking 1989's Sea of Love. And speaking of Sea of Love, this movie opens with the Phil Phillips song. You hear the song, you're sort of like close-ups through this bedroom, and you hear this voice of this guy going like,
4: Oh yeah, baby, that feel good.
3: And then like as you travel up, you start to see he's just like humping a pillow, but he's butt-ass naked. And then you see his little face turn around and he's got tears in his eyes, and you see that there's a gun pointed at his head.
5: This is okay. This is okay.
3: Dead. Nice, quick mystery. Uh, and then we get what I think is a really fun introduction to Pacino. We're at this like location where all these guys are showing up to do a Yankees meet and greet. Uh, and one of the guys there is a young. Sam Jackson,
2: who is credited. Mm-hmm. Did you see what he's credited as, Justin? No. Black guy. That's no. his character name. That's yes, his character as creditors. the credits roll. I was like, good Black guy. God. <laughs>
3: wow. That's horrible. I know. No small parts,
1: folks. Especially if you have lines. I know Spoken he great lines.
2: Like, he's like a funny no, little bit character.
1: Yeah. Obviously, to... to clarify if you have zero lines you still should not be a <laughs> black man black guy guy which makes black it even guys. worse
3: and so all these guys are coming expecting to meet the yankees they're all sitting down there's like bagels and stuff and then al pacino takes a stage in a in a yankee sweatshirt and he says guys i got good news and bad news which one you want first and everybody wants to do the good news and then you Sam-
2: love doing your al pacino accent you <laughs> love it
3: Sam Jackson goes, yo, fuck that. Give us the bad news. And he goes, the bad news is the Yankees aren't coming today, fellas. And he pulls out a badge. I got 20 outstanding warrants in the room. You're all under arrest. And it turns out all these guys are bail jumpers, basically. Mm -hmm. And they have tricked them into coming to one spot thinking they're going to meet the Yankees. And they're going to arrest them. And they're all fucking pissed off. And it sucks. And I feel bad for these guys. Is the good
2: news that they give him booze still? Yeah, so then
3: Sam Jackson goes, yo, what's the good news, homeboy? And he goes, good news is coming around. And they put vodka in uh, in these guys' orange juice. So everybody gets to drink as they're getting arrested. And they basically celebrate Al Pacino. We learn that he is about to hit his 20 years on the force. And so they're giving, they all cheers to him. And it's funny because all the guys who are getting arrested are like,
4: boo. Mm.
3: (laughs) And so it is kind of like you're sort of conflicted because... Uh, it feels kind of like shady to do this kind of entrapment scheme. Yeah. Uh, but then you get the the quintessential save the cat scene. He's he's uh, loading up the in the car outside, and this one guy comes running up with his kid, and he's like, "Oh man, am I too late for the meet
0: and greet?" You got an invitation? Yeah. Who's this? That's my son, Ernest Lee. Invitations for you only. Oh, I can hardly meet Dave Winfield without.
5: Taking my boy. You got ID, Ernest?
1: Yeah. Grant that
4: bottle. Two pounds.
0: We're all booked up, Ernest. Hey, hey, man, I got an invite. I said we're all booked up.
3: Flashes his badge and the guy goes,
0: thanks, man. Catch you later.
3: I'll catch you later. Yeah. Like I'll catch you. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty mm-hmm. good. That's a pretty good it's line. It's great.
1: It's a
2: great scene. It and is. it
3: works perfectly as a save the cat. You are like, "Okay, he's a good guy. He's not going to do this with this dude's kid there."
2: Also, okay, so we're we're hearing he's about to hit his 20 years and everybody's like, "Why aren't you retiring? Why aren't yep. you retiring?" Is like but he's only the age of 40, which is a young age to retire, but is that, Is that in the movie he's supposed to be 49?
1: Well, I'm just saying his, he's 49 in real life. I'm assuming he's... I don't think they ever do say, they say his age.
2: Well, regardless, he's he seems like, a, yeah. you know, not like an old man. Sure. But is that, like, common, I wonder, with cops or well, detectives to retire at 20 years?
3: 20 years of looking at dead bodies and, you know, crime scenes. Is 20 and- years
2: a normal time? I mean, nobody retires anymore, but... Like our generation won't re- get to retire. But is 20 years the amount of time that you usually work when then you can retire?
3: Well, it's probably the amount of time that maybe you get like pension or something. Mm. I don't know. But it's probably different when you are, um, you know, a violent crime detective mm-hmm. who has to deal with stuff. It's it probably takes in a toll New York. Order. Yeah, mm-hmm. it takes a toll on your mental and physical state. Um my, my Blu ray I watched this on a Blu-ray that I have. It had some deleted scenes. It also had a commentary from Harold Becker. I, I watched all of that. Um the deleted scenes in this movie are are just a bunch of other Save the Cat moments. They clearly were like really trying to make us like this <laughs> character. And so they wrote like five Save the Cat scenes. There's this other scene where he's like investigating um one of the crime scenes and he walks outside the building and there's this guy there. Uh, who's like letting his dog pee, and the guy is smoking a joint. And Al Pacino starts walking up to him, and we see the guy like hide the joint behind his back, and he seems really nervous. And Al Pacino is just asking him questions like, "Did you see anybody coming in or out or whatever?" And the guy's like, "Uh, I didn't see anything." He's like clearly sweating, and then the guy's joint is so small that it burns his fingers, and he goes, "Ah!" And he has to throw it onto the ground, and Al Pacino sees the joint, and it's like a moment where it's like, "Oh no, what's he gonna do?" And he goes you should get a roach clip
4: next time. You won't burn yourself.
0: And like
3: turns and walks away. <laughs> That's
4: a weak save <laughs> the cat It's weak, though. yeah.
3: You, you see why they deleted it. All of them are kind of weaker. And it's like, clip. we don't need five <laughs> save the cat moments. So then we get this really interesting dynamic where they go, he goes to investigate the murder of this first guy that we saw. And his partner is Richard Jenkins. And it seems pretty cordial at first. Like they're not, There's you, you don't really sense anything. And as they're, over the dead body and they're like checking stuff. They kind of disagree on like how long he's been dead. So you see there's a little bit of that. But then um, Pacino starts talking to him and he says, you know, you and me, we're in the same squad six years. We don't so much as have a beer together. How in the hell do you take my wife away? And suddenly Jenkins is like, dude, what the fuck? And we realize that Jenkins is married to his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And he says, hey, I didn't take nobody nowhere. You didn't treat her right and she walked. You want to kick somebody's ass about it? Kick your own. Hell yeah. He pulls off his jokes. rubber gloves and throws him and it's like, ooh, this is interesting dynamic. And then it cuts to Al Pacino at night and he's fucking wasted in his apartment calling his ex-wife on the phone. Like. Not necessarily in like a stalker way, it's more of a pathetic way. He's mm-hmm. like, I just need to talk to somebody. And she's like, stop
1: fucking calling me. Wait, I thought the call happened before. The confrontation with Jenkins. I think
2: it does. You're absolutely
1: right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, we can introduce first that he has an
3: ex wife and that he calls her. and Then we reveal. Yeah, because that that was a fun reveal. Yeah, because he says because you you don't know. He says like, "Stop calling her at night. (laughs) It's getting weird." (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it's an interesting dynamic for the character because uh, he clearly uh, is a sad sack of shit. I think he kind of hates himself for what he is, and I I would assume that's partly because of he's clearly an obsessive. Kind of workaholic guy. At
2: this time in Jenkins' career, he was really playing a lot of cops.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it took a minute for people to really appreciate that guy. I'm sure filmmakers all loved him, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, for people to actually be like, cast him in funny stuff, he's good. And yeah, it sort of sets off uh, what I think of the arc of Al Pacino is to not only learn to like trust other people, because it seems like he's kind of got a distrust of people, but I think he also is like learning to maybe like himself a little bit in this movie, too, because there's, there's other hints that he hates himself that happened throughout the movie. So there's this kind of fun policeman's ball scene in which Al Pacino ends up meeting John Goodman, who is another detective in a different area of New York. They, they don't know each other, but they realize that they have two murders that are very similar. Another naked guy who was clearly humping the bed got shot in the back of the head. And so they start talking, they hit it off, uh, and they like each other. And Funny moment where Al Pacino asks John Goodman like, Were they listening to any music? Uh Sea of Love, maybe? And John Goodman's like, What <laughs> what are you talking what's that song again? And Al Pacino starts singing it in a way that sounds like Al Pacino has literally never, never heard, the song. heard a song. Yeah. Which I wanna say I've heard Al Pacino do that in other movies. Like I think maybe mm. talented actor, but maybe he's just not musically inclined to be able to like repeat songs properly he's like yeah. you know
0: come with me my love to the sea of love come with me my love to the sea the sea of love i want to tell you
4: how much I love
3: you. But then John Goodman picks up the mantle and he starts actually like Yeah, he nails it.
4: Do you remember where we met? That's the day I knew you were my pet. I want to tell you how much
0: I love you. Something's going to come off right. the
3: he starts taking off his clothes and everything it's great and uh, they bond and they also suspect that it's a woman because they, they realize that there's like lipstick and they have fingerprints but they don't know who uh, they bond a little bit over like a shared hatred of women there's an interesting moment where Pacino is like you know I like this broad she doesn't play games she don't like you boom back of the head takes you out not like my wife who likes to stick it in over and over just to watch you
2: bleed. And, and Richard Jenkins is standing behind him yeah. when he's saying all and he
3: stuff. And he ends up getting into a fight with him. And John Goodman is like, I hear you there, brother. My wedding night, I wake up. My wife's got the tattoo needle in her hand. I got property of tattooed on my balls. Only kidding, but you catch my drift. And John Goodman ends up cheating on his wife. Later on in the movie, too. So there, there's a little bit of toxic masculinity bonding oh, yeah. going on. Uh, I mean, a cop guys.
2: movie in the 80s. Yeah, that's what it is.
3: Mm-hmm. And it ends up kind of playing into what the ultimate reveal is at the end of the movie, too.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: some other deleted scenes, too, that, that this made me think of is that you, uh, <clears throat> Lorraine Bracco actually plays, was cast and played as ex-wife. And she gets a scene, but it was cut from the movie uh, from Goodfellas and The Sopranos. What
2: a bummer.
3: Yeah. A little bit of a bummer. And it's not a bad scene either. But it was, again, a little bit of a save the cat scene where he's asking her why. And she tells him that she's pregnant with Richard Jenkins baby. And he sort of like says, I'm happy for you. And they hug. And I think it's the scene that comes right before when he actually goes up to Richard Jenkins and like shakes his hand and says, like, I'm sorry, you know, Uh, which is in which is in the movie.
1: Are there other scenes with Jenkins after this, or is this kind of like wrap No up he of that, that
3: wraps it up like he he mm-hmm. he apologizes and, and, and uh, they kind of could have
1: used one more.
3: yeah, use used one more Jenkins, so Pacino and Goodman realize that all of these victims wrote singles ads in the paper, and they all wrote poetry in their in their ads, and so they start investigating who else wrote poetry. They end up going to this other guy 's house who is a third poetry. Dude, and they, they realize that this guy has like a family, like a wife and kids. And they're like, you know, Have you ever answered any of these ads? Have you ever gone on a date? And he's adamant that he has not gone out on any of these dates. Uh, that he just does it for the thrill, but he doesn't ever go through with it. He loves his wife and kids. He literally swears in the eyes of his children Mm -hmm. that he's never gone out. And then like a hard cut to the next day, this dude is fucking dead, face down naked on a a bed. And I like the added touch of that guy. Like it's another little human detail. This character that's only in the movie for like maybe two minutes kind of brings a whole world and a whole backstory with him of like this family man who... It's cheating, you know, uh, swears he doesn't. I like it. You know, it's just like another little added touch. That
2: dude who plays that actor. His name is Michael O'Neill. And same with upcoming actress that is going to be in this movie who goes on all the dates and yeah. who John Goodman gets with. Gina Gallagher. They're both like huge character actors, like TV actors, like to this Makes day sense. still. Makes sense. Like he is, uh, if I got any big Grey's Anatomy fans out there, he was like the shooter in the like three part shooter episode. Like he's, like Grey's. in. He's like on... This is us. Like, he's done so much stuff. And that woman is also, like, I just looked her up right now, too. She's working constantly. Yeah. Both of them still work constantly. There are bit parts in this movie and work constantly on TV today. The thrill
3: of a movie like this is you can go to it and just pick a name out of any of the cast, and you know you're going to get somebody good. But
2: I feel like a lot of times we watch movies like this and then we look them up and we're like, oh, wow, they've never done anything else after this movie. Yeah. Whereas, like, it's kind of fun to see. These already kind of older actors at this point were even
3: probably mostly New York actors too. Yeah,
2: and this was a lot of their like kind of earlier first things yeah. and they're still very successful working actors today.
3: Majority of this movie was shot in Toronto, but all the exteriors were actually in New York, but uh, pretty much all the interiors were sets built in Toronto for, you know, money saving reasons. But I feel like it does a good job of feeling very New York. Like this very. this is, feels like a pretty authentically New York movie. So they realize that the killer is a poetry lover. And they come up with a scheme if they put out uh, a poetry ad, then they can meet with all these, whoever answers it, and maybe one of them is the killer.
2: Justin, when you were on the apps, you write any poetry? Hell no. But like you, you had to come up with little quips, little funny yeah, things the, this, to get people to- Yeah, it's that- all
1: about, dating, dating apps are all about the comedy. Yeah. You know, how funny can you be on, how fun, how fun and engaging can you make text message banter?
3: Yeah, watching this, it feels like this um, you know newspaper singles ad things feels very antiquated, but it's really not that different it's at not, all yeah. than uh, your typical dating app. You're still having to sort of sell yeah. yourself in words.
2: Except for now, it's all based on pictures first. Right.
1: Yeah, but that makes Pacino's drunken uh, perspective on it pretty outdated, even for the time. I don't know, maybe not for the time, but... Towards the end when he kind of was like, how the fuck could you use those things? Yeah. You know, he was like, I would never do that.
3: Well, I do think there uh, are a lot of people or I think times are changing, but there were certainly a I'm lot of people who, who are
1: that I, way against the, the apps too. I don't think that's true anymore. I it may not, not be anymore, right now. But I'm it was, sure. it, it, it was for, for years. If I exp- yeah, but, but it's so much time has passed and COVID changed everything. Yeah, for sure. Nobody, people think you're weird if you talk about dating apps like it's weird. Yeah. I agree. I agree now.
2: I mean, I know so many people have gotten married off of dating mm-hmm.
1: apps at this point,
2: but I remember kind of early on in the dating apps, This is probably so bad, but like when Justin... When you were on them and I would be like bored. I'd be like, please, Justin, just let me let me you do your dating app. And like you would let me have your phone and I would be like, no, no, that girl's not for you. That girl's not for you. And it became like an addicting game. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it's designed to be addictive, yeah. but it gets if you're seriously using it, it gets pretty awful pretty quickly.
2: But I feel like the the ad, the ad thing in papers. I could see that even back then, like it, it's, it's, it doesn't. It does to us because of apps now, but I can imagine in the time being like, ew, you put a dating app in the newspaper, you're
3: desperate. Or it's probably just scary. You know, it's like, who knows what you're going to get? Yeah. Who knows it's going to show up at these blind dates? So it probably feels like just a major risk. Yeah. But I would say the same thing, honestly, for the dating apps in a way. it's not. I wouldn't say don't do it or it's a major risk, but you don't know what you're going to get. You know, the pictures, even though there are pictures, pictures lie. Have you ever had a bad one where you showed up and you're like, you are not the picture? I don't think so. No. Never been totally, totally ripped off, schemed, catfished. I don't think so. No. You-
2: I also feel like that was a thing that happened more early on. Yeah. Too. Because I remember like my friends of my girlfriends being like, he didn't look anything like his picture. But like that yeah. doesn't really happen anymore because everything's online.
3: Yeah. It's, and it's easier to sort of trace. You could go yeah. to a number of other apps to sort of dig into who this person is. So they decide they're going to do this blind date scheme to find the killer. They first have to write a poetry, a piece of poetry, which is kind of a funny scene where it's like all the cops are together. And of course, they're like, roses are red, violets are blue. I got a 12 inch dick and it's all for you. And they're laughing and getting drunk. But then all of a sudden... Al Pacino's dad, the great William Hickey from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, speaks up from the back of the room with this beautiful poem.
0: I live alone within myself like a hut within the woods. I keep my heart high upon a shelf barren of other goods. I need another's arms to reach for it and place it where it belongs. I need another's touch and smile to fill my heart with songs. Not bad, huh? A little corny, but it's all right. Beautiful. Better what we got. Just make that up, Mr. K. Frank's mother wrote that. High school, 1934. She was a goddamn beautiful person. Go ahead, use it. She liked that,
3: and it's a great scene. And you can tell he like his dad is is old and maybe an alcoholic too. And he has to like take put him to bed and stuff. Again, it's kind of another save the cat moment where it's like, all right, we like this guy. He takes care of his dad. Yeah. Uh, and then we get a really fun like speed dating sequence where all the people who answer the ad, they're going to meet them at this restaurant. Al Pacino is going to be to play the part of the person who wrote the ad. John Goodman is the waiter and his job is to try to collect the prints from the wine glasses and they could match them up with the prints that they have from the crime scenes. And it's this sort of simultaneously fun but sad sequence because basically every one of these women sees through that something's wrong. We already talked about the older woman who thinks that he's just sort of, like, playing a game with her. There's literally a woman there who thinks he's a cop, calls him a cop. Um, and then our girl, Barkin, shows up. And uh, Babe, she, babe, babe town USA. She's in this, like, red leather thriller jacket. Immediately, like, I don't think we're gonna work.
0: I don't believe in wasting time on this kind of stuff. You know what you know, and you go with it. You go with what? You're just not my type.
5: Oh, well. I mean, uh, you just sat down. You give a little, little bit of time, though. Know?
0: I believe in animal attraction. I believe in love at first sight. I believe in this, and I don't feel it with you. Well, I'm hell on wheels once you get to know me, honey. How you folks doing here? Is that wine okay, Miss? Hmm
3: then he tries to kind of like weasel his way but he doesn't do it and she doesn't even touch the wine glass and so she ends up getting up to leave and he's like I didn't get prince I didn't get the prince <laughs> So immediately we're like, okay, she probably is the girl because she's feisty and they didn't get the prince. So like, she's going to be the lead. Really funny moment too, where John Goodman comes and picks up a glass, takes it to the back of the kitchen and like uh, a waiter like bumps into him and he has to like fumble to catch it. It's just good physical comedy. So he doesn't smash it. That was funny. They talked about it in an interview with Pacino and Harold Becker. A lot of these scenes between Pacino and Ellen Barkin uh, were... um, all the dialogue and stuff was actually created by them. They, they ah. would go and uh, rehearse the scenes with a tape recorder and just say whatever they wanted to try to find the most sort of natural back and forth between them. Harold Becker would tape record it. And then he would go back and incorporate those lines into the script, uh, which he said that he learned on dog day afternoon. That was what, that was part of the way that they made uh, that movie feel so natural. And uh, he's like, every now and then it's good to just get a tape recorder out, and record your rehearsals.
1: So um, he also sounds like Al Pacino? I was just... <laughs> no, that was Al Pacino saying that. Oh. That was
3: oh, Al Pacino oh. was the one. It was his idea to do it.
2: Hmm. I wonder what the writer thought about that. Yeah. He was like, Al Pacino, just do my dialogue. He
3: here. did. Uh, Al Pacino did uh, give nod to the book. It sounds like he read the novel and took a lot of uh, inspiration from the character in the novel, too. He talked about it. As the as writer as it was, was like a probably
1: one. like, as long as I get paid, yeah, I'll rewrite this true. thing a hundred times. Yeah, I don't give money, a shit. Money, buddy. Mm.
3: Uh, and then there's a great final beat in that sequence, too, where after the older woman has sort of like walked out on him, he goes through like five more dates. And then as Ellen Barkin is getting up to leave, he sees the older woman has like come back to the bar and s- has been watching him go on all these dates. And she gives him this look of like, you're Ugh, a fucking heartbreaking. You're a piece of shit. And he's sort of like, God damn it. I am a piece of shit. It is heartbreaking. You feel for this older woman. While they're investigating, we get introduced to this character who is like a repair man and he's played by Michael Rooker. Who uh, uh, we love from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. He's in Cliffhanger. Uh, a lot of people might know him from the Marvel uh, Guardians of the Galaxy movies. And he gets a few scenes where he's he's at one of the buildings uh, where the crimes happen. So they talk to him and they're like, "Did you see anybody?" And he has this sort of like kind of racist moment too, where he's like, "Yeah, it was a black guy. He looked kind of suspicious. I saw him running out." And they are like, mm, "Okay," and they they even kind of investigate that a little bit. But yeah, he keeps he pops in every now and then. At this point in time, Michael Rooker had only really done Henry Portrait of a serial killer, which was critically acclaimed, but it was not like a big movie. I don't think a lot of people had seen the movie. And so at this point in time, I feel like he's a pretty good uh red herring. And not to get straight to the end here, but like if you're watching this movie nowadays, you're going Michael Rooker's bound to get involved in this fucking thing. He's a <laughs> known to play bad guys and everything. He's a little bit obvious now. In the year 2023, you see him pop up and you're like, okay, I think Michael Rooker might be
2: involved. He's such a throwaway character, though, yeah. at this point of the movie.
3: And I think at this point in time, people probably wouldn't have thought anything of it. But keep him in your brains, folks, because he
0: might come back into play. <laughs>
3: um, so Al Pacino ends up seeing Ellen Barkin again on the street. She kind of confronts him. She's like, I don't think you wrote that poem. And the reality is, is that he didn't write the poem his mom did. And so Al Pacino just is up front. He's like, you're right. I didn't. Is my mom. And she kind of likes that. She's like, oh, okay. I kind of appreciate that you use something that your mom wrote. And, they, and then they kind of start to hit it off. And we get these kind of fun little sequences where they're talking to each other. And she says that she was married before and she has a child. But then she had to leave this guy. Uh, and didn't tell him, uh, and he tells her about his ex-wife, and they kind of bond over being like people in their midlife with kids and shit and uh, uh, the struggles of that, and now she kind of finds him sexy, and then we get this great scene where he takes her back to his place, which I thought was, would be a huge risk on his part because he's got fucking policemen's trophies and shit all around yeah, him. he's seems, an idiot. He's telling her that he's a printer. So he's lying to her about his occupation, and she works at a shoe store. Um, but he takes her back home to his apartment. They're fucking hot and heavy, making out. She starts kind of stripping her clothes off as they're kissing. He's shoving her face in her She's wearing boobs. an
2: incredible pair of jeans. I kept thinking, like, I got a great pair, pair of jeans, jeans with like a tucked
3: this. in white shirt. Is this when you got rock hard? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Great.
1: So you were sitting next to Corey watching this movie and you just had <laughs> With a, a pillow over my protection. lap.
2: <laughs> Two dogs, my brother walking in and out of the room. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's what happens sometimes. After when you the watch movie, movies. did
1: Jack did Jack make a pass after the movie?
2: <laughs> he went to the bathroom for a really long time. I, wasn't really I passed sure what happened.
3: a bowel movement. <laughs> and Speaking of bathroom, she says, I got to go to the bathroom real quick. And she... Pulls herself away from him Reaches down grabs her purse And as she does Al Pacino catches a quick glimpse Of a pistol in her purse And she runs into the bathroom And closes the door And he suddenly dawns on him She has a fucking gun in her purse Holy shit And he starts freaking out He's like Jesus Holy fuck
5: What the fuck Oh shit! Holy fuck! Oh my god! Oh, oh, I can't believe it! I can't believe it! Fuck!
3: And it's great. He's selling the fear perfectly, Uh, and like you said, it's a great little role reversal. You don't often see your hero cop character have a little fucking panic attack like this, especially so right funny. what feels like is leading up to a, like a hot sex scene. And so he pulls his own gun and he's like, can't figure out where in the room he wants to like stage himself to prepare. it. So he's like sitting on the bed, but then he jumps up and he goes to the corner and then he's he's like, can't find it. Finally, she opens the door and he just like, Tackles her, essentially grabs her, grabs her purse away from her, throws her into a closet And then opens up her purse and pulls out and reveals that it was a starter pistol Like the kind of pistol you would use at a fucking horse race And so he realizes he fucked up She's in the
0: closet going like, what the fuck is going on, get me out of here A stardust pistol. I saw the You goddamn away. son of a bitch! You goddamn. Bitch. Oh, she never fucking put your hands on me. I got scared. Tell me about scared. Uh, you don't know. What are you doing with a stardust pistol? It's none of your goddamn business. Uh, okay. Get off of me. Listen to me. Listen to me. I saw, listen. to me. I saw the gun sticking out of the purse. I freaked, okay? I, it was a reflex. Look, feel my heart. Feel it. It's like a drum. Feel it? Feel my heart. It's like a drum beating. I saw the
3: gun. I didn't know. And my instincts kicked in. I'm sorry. I got scared. She kind of like chills out a little bit. She's like, oh, you're scared, huh? And she shoves him up against the wall face first. So she's behind him. (laughs) And she strips completely naked and starts like grinding on him from the back. He's is fully clothed. Still. <laughs> she's butt ass naked and she's like rubbing her boobs on his back and like humping him. I don't quite understand it, but I fucking love it because it it's just she's feels like I'm
2: taking dominance. Bitch. She's
3: totally dominating him. It feels completely vulnerable. The lighting is fucking great. You have a really, you got some sexy saxophone blaring <laughs> in the music. It's raining outside. It's just fucking awesome. And I gotta say, This is a complicated scene. It's a long scene that all takes place in one room with a bunch of emotions going on. I don't know how long it would take them to shoot a scene like this, but it feels complicated to me, like from a directing standpoint, from an acting standpoint, to navigate all of these kind of extreme and specific emotions of fear and confusion, but on top of all of that, still maintaining the sex, they eventually got to have sex at the end of the scene. And for all that shit to happen, and by the end, you believe that they still want to fuck each other, I think is pretty impressive shit all around from the actors, the director, the music, the editing. I think it's a really well done. It's like the most memorable scene in the movie for me.
4: Yeah. And
3: the sexy scene. It's great.
1: Yeah. The standout definitely is Pacino's reaction. The freak out. When he just
2: throws her into the closet because there, it's like in a weird, twisted way, kind of funny too. Yeah, like
1: yeah, yeah. It's it's she's terrified. Like imagine, (laughs) oh my
3: god, yes, she thinks she's gonna get murdered. Yeah. Yeah. This is the nightmare. This is why you don't go home with the person in the singles ad that you met that night, because they will try to kill you when you get there. And this is the moment. So after the sex scene, the, the shift in Pacino kind of changes a little bit where he starts to kind of like get into this relationship and he's feeling good and he's actually actively not investigating her because there's a moment where he has the opportunity to get her prints because he makes her a cup of coffee in the morning and... He's like thinking about he pours the coffee out and he gets his little evidence bag and he starts to put it in there. But then he bails and he says, no, I'm not even going to investigate this woman. And he decides to throw it away. And John Goodman is like, did you get her prints? And he's like, she didn't do it. He's like, how do you know she did? not
5: I asked her.
3: So uh, any he, John Goodman has a pretty funny line. So he's like, should we brush your dick for prints? <laughs> um. And yeah, it's changing him a little bit. And then there's, I think, a significant scene where he goes to visit her at her shoe store. And at this point, she still thinks he's a printer. And these kind of like thuggish gangster guys come in and are kind of being an asshole to her. And he can't fucking help himself. He stands up and just like stares these dudes down, which Corey thought was pretty baller move. I did. You were like, that was cool.
2: Well, because it's like he had such... To have such strength by just standing and staring at someone and it like... Yeah, he doesn't
3: say anything. He really just stares at them.
2: fucking with them. That's power, baby. It's a
3: very Paul Clifford move. It, oh,
2: my God. It's such a Paul Clifford We've move. We've heard stories of,
3: of Corey's dad. It's my
2: dad's go-to move, honestly. If, if somebody
3: is threatening... Just staring at him. Yeah. Down. Yes. If somebody's threatening Corey's dad physically, his move is to just stare them in the eyes. In a way that freaks them, always freaks them out, uh-huh. too. The end of the story is always the person backing down. Yeah, he just, and then
2: like like, f- like yelling at my dad, and he's just like, okay. Yeah,
3: sometimes your dad will be like, well, hit me. Do it. You do it. <laughs> do it. If
2: you're going to do it,
4: do it. Take a swing. <laughs> Why don't you just go for it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> he loves to tell these stories, too. He loves them.
4: So,
3: yeah, she that got, that got Corey. My uh, mom's
2: always like, Paul, Paul. But... Just, <laughs> What, what
3: I'm not doing anything. I'm just looking. I didn't touch him. I'm just Can I look? Can I look?
2: Literally, Justin. That's like a line he said. He's like, I'm just, I'm just looking.
3: Um, why, why, what?
2: His other favorite wife, Why, are you, why are you getting so upset? Why Why are you? Why are you so upset, right now? You seem like you're, you're getting pretty emotional. Are you, seems, are you gonna cry? It looks like you're about to cry. It looks like you're about to cry.
3: That is the greatest. <laughs> I mean, that's. I think that's brilliant. That's like. emotional manipulation yes (laughs) brilliant emotional manipulation Mm. to tell somebody who wants to beat you up that they look like they're about to cry (laughs) there's no way that doesn't make them just completely sink into themselves (laughs) um but what happens in the scene is the guys kind of recognize him i don't think they've literally recognize them, i think but they, they
2: were at the beginning of the movie
3: i don't think they were they, one of those I, guys i'm
2: almost positive they were
3: that didn't seem familiar to me but maybe
2: i think that they were like the because there's like two guys who are like in suits that like run in yeah
3: and they ask him like hey you're you're the yeah, guy is, and he is goes that holy not cow i don't think it's those guys now, but it, to me my interpretation is that they were just like they can sense he's a cop they're like this guy's like don't do anything man this guy's a cop so they say that and they end up leaving but then ellen barkin is like wait you're a cop and then this is another moment that i think reveals to me his own feelings because he kind of immediately flips out he's like oh what nobody likes a cop right all these people in here they get robbed they get raped i'm suddenly their daddy come the wet ass hour i'm everybody's daddy and like storms out of the store, <laughs> and she's literally like, "Dude, yeah, you're a freak." <laughs> she's like, what the fuck was that about? You, you lied to me. I'm not mad that you're a cop. You fucking told me you're a printer. And he's like, "I'm yeah. sorry," but it's because he fucking hates himself, you know.
1: <laughs> and he's he, starting to morph into into your uh, Nick Nolte. <laughs> Nick Nolte. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: sorry. They're of the same. They're of the same ilk a little bit um but she convinced she's like dude i'm not mad that that you're a cop you just don't fucking lie to me don't ever do that again and then there's this kind of interesting weird sequence where he tells her he starts having fun with her and he's like come to this grocery store in this trench coat with nothing on under it and they kind of just nothing really happens in the scene they sort of just walk around the fruit aisle and stare at each other just knowing i guess that she's naked underneath
2: No, he touches her fingers her yeah he fingers her yeah, I mean, he puts his hand up in between our legs.
3: I guess I didn't catch that. It's very... It's- oh, you're too busy jerking <laughs> off no. <in> the <laughs> No. I didn't catch the fingering part. Okay, well, then that's, that's... I guess that's a pretty crazy scene. I mean, it's a sexy <laughs> scene. Sexy, but it's also kind of weird. Um, Trevor Jones is the one who does the music, by the way. Uh, lots of saxophone. But in this particular sequence in the grocery store, that's actually a Day tune. You ever listen to Day? the' 90s yeah, smooth no. operator, and uh she did that song. This is no ordinary love, kind of like uh enigma, you know, it was kind of in that vein mm-hmm. of like sexy yoga music in a way. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I know who
1: she is. I just didn't yeah. uh, didn't put it on.
3: yeah, same. I didn't really like any of that music. I kind of like it better now than I did back when I was a kid. Um, So he ends up, they end up kind of dating and falling in love and all this stuff. He finds the record of Seal of love in her apartment. So that kind of starts to get him thinking. He starts drinking more. All throughout this movie too, there's all this alcoholic stuff too. Like he he is a straight up alcoholic. uh, Drinks constantly. He's sort of flip-flopping between wanting to trust her, but also sort of suspecting that she might be the killer. He wants to meet her kid at one point. She gives him this funny pair of leopard shoes that, to me, that feels like an Al Pacino move. Like, what if she gave me some shoes? Because he brings it up all the time. He's like, oh, I'm wearing the shoes. But it's also sort of like, what are these? What's the significance of yeah. these leather for shoes? I think it had significance in Pacino's mind. And then he ends up finding like uh, copies of the singles ads of all the victims taped uh, magnetized to her refrigerator and so he starts to really kind of freak out and this basically brings us to our final sort of big thrill sequence where he's kind of pretty sure she's the killer and she ends up appearing at his apartment and there's this like really uh, cool shot where she like walks from the shadows down her apartment hallway and she's like hey buddy let's go inside and have sex and he's like nervous and she's like straddling him and she's like. I got something for you. And she walks over to the record player and she puts on Sea of Love. And he's like, She's about to fucking kill my ass. And so he stands up, grabs her purse, again pulls out the starter's pistol. He's like, What you forget the real one? Here. And he pulls out his own gun and he's like, Go on. You know, I know what you're here for.
0: Uh-huh. Let's get it over with. I don't want to wait a couple more days. Let's get it over with right now. Bingo. Bingo.
5: Right now. Okay, just put the gun away, please. You well,
0: want fuck first? Then get me face down?
5: Just put the gun away, Frank, okay?
0: What kind of creep am I, Helen? What am I, the guy who fucks you once and wants to own you, right? What about James Mackey? What kind of creep was he? Well, that other poor bastard in Queens. What's his name? Raymond Brown.
5: You fucked him good.
0: You been following me around?
5: I remember following you.
0: And how do you know about them?
5: It's my job. It's what I'm paid for. I didn't sleep with any of those guys, Frank. They would just stay. <laughs> they would <were> just-
0: <laughs> Okay, I slept with stink Mackie. Big deal. Why it I didn't don't mean care. anything to me. I
5: <laughs> Why'd you do it, Ellen? Tell me why you did it. Tell me you did it. Tell me why you did it. I want to know everything,
3: right? Come on, talk to me. And it gets weird. She doesn't admit to anything, and so he eventually lets her leave. He doesn't know exactly what's going on, and then all of a sudden his doorbell rings. We think it's probably her again. He goes and opens the door, and fucking Michael Rooker, the repairman, comes flying in, beats the shit out of Al Pacino, (laughs) straddles him from behind, gets his gun, and says, like, did you have
4: fun with her? Huh? Were you having fun with her? And he's like, who are you talking about? And he goes, my wife. Bum, bum, bum.
3: And we realize he is the ex-husband of Ellen Barkin, the one who she basically ran away from. He's like, take your clothes off. Show me what you did. And like, we, we learn that he basically has been doing this. He's following all these guys that she's been going out with. And she's only, she says she only had sex with even one of them. Is this
2: kind of what a cuck is?
3: Well, a cuck d- likes to watch their significant other fuck another person. They like it. Mm. That's what a cuck is. So he doesn't seem to like it. Yeah, <laughs> he kind of hates it so much that he murders <laughs> people. True. True. <laughs> so as much as I would love to say that Michael Rooker is a cuck in this movie, I just don't think technically no, he qualifies. Yeah. Um, but I thought uh, an interesting moment in this sequence is that I... Uh, Al Pacino, as he's being straddled on the floor and like he's like telling him to take his clothes off, he's going to basically do to him what he did all the other victims. Al Pacino sees his policeman's trophy under his bed because he hid it under the bed so that Ellen Barkin didn't see it. He grabs a policeman's trophy and he whacks Michael Rooker over the head with it. It knocks him off of him. They end up getting into this huge fight in which Al Pacino starts picking up things from his bedroom and bashing Michael Rooker with him. He he uses the policeman's trophy. He picks up a dumbbell that's sitting there and bashes him with it. He eventually pulls out his gun and shoots him with it and then throws him out the window. It's kind of, if you think about the arc of Al Pacino being like a person who at the beginning of this movie sort of like has a misogyny about him and, and, and hates himself and hates women because of it too, the overall arc of him sort of learning to not hate himself and not hate women Michael Rooker, who is essentially doing what Al Pacino was doing at the beginning of the movie. Al Pacino was in a lot of ways stalking his ex-wife, calling her in the middle of the night, drunkenly, going after Richard Jenkins, who is her new man. It's not that dissimilar to what Michael Rooker is doing, which is stalking his ex-wife, following the people that she's going out with and murdering them. So if he's kind of a representation of Al Pacino's Internal misogyny and hatred towards himself. It's funny that he's using his trophies and his dumbbells and his property from his room to sort of beat that representation and throw him out the window. You know, defeating his own toxic masculinity. How's that for a crackpot theory? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, the well, go on. No, I was going to say it's. I don't think it's a crackpot theory. I think you're spot on. Thanks. I think Rooker is obviously both of them are toxic in different ways, yeah. but Rooker feels like a representation of like the worst version mm-hmm. of that. Obviously, the most extreme version. Um, I don't know if I'm like convinced. I don't. I don't know what Pacino learns at the end of this movie. <laughs> He doesn't seem like a great guy to me. Like he he's. He gets uh, on the wagon and that's a step in the right direction. But he still just feels kind of like, I I have a hard time forgiving him at the end of the movie.
2: I don't know if he learned a lesson. I think he he solved his case and he's like, damn, I'm a good detective.
3: (laughs) To that point, (laughs) I do wish there's the sequence, there's a scene where he goes to Richard Jenkins and apologizes and shakes his hands. But that happens like early on in the movie. I kind of wish that was a But he also goes
2: that. and shakes Richard Jenkins' hands like three different times in this movie. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm not But usually do it. And then he, he does undercuts it again. It,
3: but usually he undercuts it. But yeah, there is I a final handshake go. scene where he's like, I'm sorry. Uh, and they kind of like, you know. I don't bury need the to hatchet.
2: like Al Pacino. I don't need to be like, God, I love Al Pacino at the end of this movie. Like, I don't need that in this movie. Yeah. But if you're looking at it through that lens and like no, he did it. He's the same. It's I guess he just doesn't drink anymore, and and yeah. hasn't he only not drank for like three weeks or something? <laughs> yeah. He's like yeah. haven't
1: drinking twenty. He's also like obsessive. Yeah, he's obsessive too. He's yeah. still obsessive, and like that's he's what gonna J- be John a obviously
3: horrible partner. Is. I don't I necessarily know, yeah. think th- a movie has to have their characters learn a valuable no, lesson. No, 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 no.
2: I'm just saying it through the lens that you were saying.
3: He's just he's he's overcome certain aspects of what was. Killing him at the beginning of this movie, and and I feel like the Possibly. the defeat of Michael Possibly. Rooker. You know, I think the movie does makes a point of yeah. setting them up as they're kind of similar guys. Like it's maybe not that. Yeah. F- maybe he's a week away from killing Richard Jenkins.
2: Yeah, and Ellen Barkin needs to run. She needs to. She needs to <laughs> yeah. go to therapy and realize why she keeps getting with these toxic men.
1: Yeah, I sure. don't think he's gonna get. I think. I granted, I do think we could have used one more Jenkins scene. I do think the apology could have been earned a little bit more come later. But I think the point of that apology scene, whether or not it was placed in the right spot, is that Pacino, he's gross in a lot of ways. Um, and he's extremely disrespectful of women and doesn't really much pay attention to their needs at all or even yeah. address that they have a fucking child. No. But, you know, he he's making an effort at least with the men in his life to to make good with them to make good by them. Yeah. Well, and uh, I think I think
3: with Barkin too, you know. He does say he wants to meet Barkin's daughter and Yeah,
1: he's just I don't know.
3: He's giving up alcohol. That's a big thing. He's giving it up for her.
2: Yes, sure. There's I don't I don't need to like be like I think he really has grown
4: he's by the end. He's a good of
3: movie. guy. I don't need to. There's also for this a movie. moment. It, you know, I thought I think it's interesting to uh in Wolf we had the conversation. You were sort of like critical of the fact that the movie kept making a point of her being like, "You're a good man, Will," and you were like, yeah. "I don't see it. Why do they keep saying that?" That happens in this movie too. She, I think, twice in the movie says, "You're a good man." Um, yeah. Funny that it's mm-hmm. kind of similar parallels. Yeah.
1: Well, Corey, I think my point is less of we we need it. And more like I just don't buy that she gets back together with him at the end. The change sure, from sure. her going, from her walking away from him, refusing to talk to him—they haven't spoken <laughs> since, like the horrible yeah. interaction they last had. And he's done absolutely nothing to, other than telling her that he's not drinking, yeah. which could be a lie. Um, he's done nothing to earn it. He's not even particularly charming to me in this scene. So I just in don't the last see, scene, in the last scene, he's just relentless and annoying. He's exhausting. <laughs> he really is. He really is. Yeah. Yeah. And so thank you I think for he's, finally I think he's agreeing charming. with me. <laughs> yeah. But he is annoying. <laughs> he's, he's annoying and exhausting. And, and she goes just in one moment, she goes from completely walking away from him yeah. to... Smiling and agreeing to like start all over with him, and then that those are just like the Hollywood endings I cannot stand. It is a Hollywood ending, but don't it. you think that
3: that kind of works in that final scene? So the this he goes and he meets her. I'm saying it does. What do you mean? Don't I think it works? I just finished <laughs> a minute of telling you why I don't think it works. So you weren't you weren't charmed by the when no, he gets run into all. by the guy and stuff, and she's laughing. Like, I
2: think that's was real. Like that, it
3: was real. It was in the commentary. So that was an extra
2: who (laughs) fucked up and just ran into. It wasn't an extra.
3: It was a real guy. So like they, they, in the scene, he goes to her shoe store. He catches her as she's going out to lunch. And basically it's like this long walk and talk down a New York street where he's essentially begging her to like, take him back and saying how much he's changed and stuff. And he's joking and stuff. She hates him at first, but then she starts to like loosen up. And there's this moment where as he's talking to her, this guy, coming the opposite direction, just literally slams into Al Pacino and almost knocks him completely off frame. And
2: he starts laughing.
3: And Al- and she starts laughing. Yeah. And Al Pacino doesn't even miss a beat. He just flies right back into frame and keeps going. So good. And like just totally rolls with it. And she is like, struggling to hold it together it feels so real and yeah he uh, Harold Becker said that that's exactly what happened like they had maybe 10 real extras there but they couldn't shut down this the new york street like they were in an area that you just could not <laughs> shut down so he was like 50% of these people are just real people walking through and this one guy just barreled through and like seemed to intentionally crash into Al Pacino, and he was like, "I thought in the moment the shot is fucked." Like I was like, "Oh, that sucks that that happened." But they didn't stop going, and he was like, "I didn't call cut." And when I looked at it in the editing room, I was like, "This is by far the most magical take of this scene." Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, That person, that person had a save the cat moment. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> save the scene. Yeah, yeah.
3: And it does. I think to, for me, it does work in making it kind of snaps you out of the phoniness of the scene, which I agree, it's phony. It's like they are just shoving a happy ending onto this movie
2: but like whatever it's yeah. like a heightened erotic thriller like i'm just kind of like yeah. okay I sure but because she's right, so look, genuinely look.
3: laughing at it and stuff i then kind of b- buy it by the end that she's like all right let's go have a cup of coffee together because yeah.
1: i get it writing is hard you yeah. need to wrap things <laughs> up quickly and you need in the i have one scene to get him to turn <laughs> yeah. her around you uh-huh. know? How do you do it? It's <laughs> I think there probably was a better way and maybe it would have taken an extra scene. But yeah, I just don't like scenes in which like people flip with in in the same yeah. moment, in the same breath that they're Um. You know, exhausted yeah. Yeah. with the person, they somehow the other person gets them to turn completely around. Especially after what she's been through, I just don't buy it. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's <laughs> it's a movie thing for sure, and this movie yeah. has a lot of movie things. Like, there's a lot of kind of silly. Even afterwards, yeah. the next day, Corey was like, "So wait, what does Michael Rooker do? Like, what he he puts on the record every time? Like, it's all kind of contrived. Yeah, wait, can you explain that real
1: quick? <laughs> Who put? She put Ellen Barkin, obviously put on the <laughs> record for Al Pacino and I I'm guessing that she was sincere that she Saw him fondling it yes. and was like, "You like? This. I'm putting this on mm-hmm. for the mood." Yeah. So Michael Rooker put it on every other time randomly. Yeah, I don't. I, it's it's kind
3: of it's a little bit of an unanswered question for me too. I mean, he when they're trying to figure out why they're like, you know, these are first dates. You only pull out your records on the first date. You don't actually listen to them, but you pull them out to show people and to like get to know them and know what they like. So I assume maybe there's a little bit of that where like maybe that is one of her With- go to. Things when she goes out on first dates is like, I like this, but But it doesn't that
1: particular music. Like, why then would she pretend like she hasn't heard it when he pulls it out? Did she? Unless it's she says she 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 hadn't
3: heard heard it in a long time. She's like,
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't listen to them anymore. Oh, so then it's all Michael Rooker, it could be all of his collection, but why would he didn't do it with Pacino? Yeah, like he didn't go over and put some music on before he He should have. Maybe he was going to because he was telling him to strip. He so maybe was, like, it was in the, He's waiting in the hallway, and he's like,
3: "Fuck! I was gonna play that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I, it's my thing. I I don't think it actually quite ties itself up. It perfectly. doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, but it's a fun movie gimmick, and like, it's a good mystery yeah. stuff. No, the
1: writer's like, I want a song I really love yeah. to repeat over and over again, and to be associated with something bad happening, yep. so that when it does come on, it it you you think yeah. some it's it's going to happen. Yeah. But then he doesn't resolve it. But I do love that line you brought up from Pacino, where um, he—that line is so revealing about his character when he says, um, "Why would you put on music if you've been with someone for a long time?" Yeah, yeah. you know, you get a good glimpse of his like coldness. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, why his wife left him. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
3: and that's the end of the movie. It ends with a really, what I think is a terrible cover of the song by Tom Waits.
4: Come with me, man.
3: Stupid sounding. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I love the film. Uh, Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll give final thoughts on Sea of Love Welcome back to Cinema Possess, and we are talking Final Thoughts on 1989 Sea of Love, starring Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin and John Goodman and Richard Jenkins. Lorraine Bracco, cut from the film. Corey, I'm going to start with you. Final Thoughts. How do you feel about this film? I think this movie's super fun.
2: I love a thriller. Add an erotic thriller on top of it. Makes it even more fun. Um... I mean, this is not like the best movie I've ever seen in my life, but it is a very good time. And a lot of people have asked me like, oh, what's what's the next movie you're doing on the pod? And when I tell them this, most people, actually every single person I've told had never seen this movie. And to all of them, I was like, oh, my God, you have to watch it. You'll love it. It's Mm -hmm. such a fun time. And that's uh, my final thought, really, is that it's just it's a fun movie. It's exciting. It moves fast. Great performances. You'll laugh. Maybe you'll get rock hard. Watch this
3: movie. Mm. Guaranteed, folks. <laughs> if I'll you're just, lucky. I'll just piggyback on that. I think if you're looking for a movie on Friday night,
5: mm-hmm.
3: bust, bust out the popcorn, pop in see a Love. I think you're going to be entertained. I think you're going to enjoy it. And I think you'll be surprised at uh, how elevated it is compared to many thrillers of the erotic kind. I love this movie. I'm keeping the Blu-ray. Justin, final thoughts?
1: I love this movie. I think it's a genre filled with uh, a lot of tropes and cliches, and I think the movie does a really good job of avoiding many of them. Um, Flipping some stuff on its head, giving you some unexpected twists and turns. A lot of moments where I laughed, balancing humor with tension Uh, Cheesy at times of course and some stuff that doesn't work for sure but overall as a whole I think it's a a must watch
3: agreed well now that we've said everything there is to say about Sea of Love what do you say we play
4: quiz with me Justin and Corey Uh we already used that quiz with me On the Sea of Songs quiz. That's right, folks. You made that up right on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's right,
3: folks. It's the Sea of Songs quiz. Just as the song Sea of Love plays a key role in this film, these seven songs play a key role in other films. Can you guess them all? So
1: Justin was just talking about this. Same. We have to give the song title? Different
3: for every question (laughs) you'll you'll know by the question but it relates to what you were talking about where uh, you know these are all songs that are repeated in the movies for various reasons question number one this peppy jazz tune was made popular by louis armstrong and was featured heavily in a 2001 horror film to warn victims when a mysterious creature was drawing near what year 2001 Louis Armstrong? This peppy jazz tune was originally made popular by Louis Armstrong. Jeepers,
2: creepers,
3: where do you get those beepers? Ding, 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 jeepers, mm-hmm. creepers. Good job. Corey's got points on the board. Fun fact, the phrase jeepers, creepers was originally created as a euphemistic expression to replace Jesus Christ. So literally, you would be like, Jesus Christ, look at those eyes. Jeepers, creepers, look at those eyes. Mm. Mm. And another fun fact, did you know that that's called a minced oath? Like the word darn or gosh, you know, a word to replace another word that would be considered a taboo or a swear or, or a, uh, a blasphemous word. It's called a minced oath. Hmm. Hmm. Fun fact. Oh, okay. I didn't know that until I, I looked that up. Question number two. The Sonny and Cher song, I Got You, Babe, is heard on the radio. Hog Day. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> justin points on the board it's a tie game folks getting dairy (laughs) question number three (laughs) this one may be a little tougher the rolling Stones song time is on my side yes it is appears in this 1998 supernatural thriller first sung by a serial killer on death row during his own execution, and then repeated every time his demon spirit possesses a new body.
1: Justin, shocker.
3: But super close in terms of the kind of killer. Have I seen this movie? You have? I can give you a big hint. Okay. It stars Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington in a
2: supernatural horror?
3: Maybe you haven't seen this.
4: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: It's a possession movie in which every time uh-huh. the person gets possessed, they sing... With Denzel Washington? With Denzel. 1998. Justin, I'll open it up if you can guess it.
1: You'll open it I up. Well, you mean- had already made a
3: guess, so, I was gonna, so it was like Corey huh? makes her guess, but I'll open it back oh. up to you if you can think of it.
1: I don't know. No, I'm, I'm, I think I'm far away from it.
3: Fallen. The 1998 mm. thriller Fallen. I don't think I know that movie. Oh, well, you got to see it. It sounds fun great. stuff. It's really fun stuff. Okay, no points on that one. Question number four. This public enemy song is heard every time a character, Radio Rahim, appears in Spike Lee's 1989 Do film, right Do the Right oh. Thing. What's the <laughs> name of the song? Wait, sorry. Fight the power. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Good job. Fight the powers that be. And you're the power, Corey. And Justin's fighting you hard. He's got two points. You only got one. <laughs> Damn.
1: Um, still, I still can't forgive the Jeepers Creepers one. That was, impre- that was impressive, of course. Thank
2: you. Well done. well done. I thought it was Jeepers Creepers at first, but then when you said Louis Armstrong, I was like, huh? Jeepers
1: Creepers.
2: That's so weird because I can only think of a woman singing it.
3: You thought wrong. Question number five. John Denver's Rocky Mountain High is heard playing in the background before many of the elaborate accidental deaths in this popular horror franchise.
1: Just in final destination.
3: Correct.
1: That is correct. I got. I almost. I wanted to say final countdown.
3: <laughs> that should have been the song that plays before. Yeah. I don't exactly understand why Rocky Mountain final High.
2: Countdown. That
3: would have been so funny. Okay. Question number six. Wong Kar Wai's 1994 Hong Kong romance. Just in California dreaming. Ding ding. Damn you.
4: <laughs>
3: okay. So Justin has 4 points. What was the question? Kar carwise 1994 Hong Kong Romance Chunking Express repeatedly uses this oh, classic never even heard of West Coast movie. Jam by the Mamas and the Papas. Okay. You would have gotten it All maybe the by, the, by the end.
2: Just by guessing a Mamas and Papas song?
3: West Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could have gotten that. That's why I threw that in there to maybe maybe help. Yeah, yeah. Okay, final one. See, th- final one. Okay, this may be the hardest one yet. Are you sniffing paint over there, Jason? <laughs> it's just a, just paint a paintbrush. Brush. Feels good <laughs> to brush yourself. It does. Oh. <laughs> okay, go on. Final question. This one is worth 100 points. Oh. So whoever <laughs> gets <laughs> it <laughs> wins That's the game. Okay, question number seven. This movie. Concerns a radio DJ who feels he is being stalked by a mysterious caller who always requests the jazz standard Misty by Johnny Mathis. What is the name of the film? Gory, are you listening?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: A radio DJ who feels he is being stalked by a mysterious caller.
2: Oh, I know, but I can't think of what it's called. The movie's called. I know what you're talking about. How's that guy? Uh, I
3: think you're thinking of the wrong. one. Oh. <laughs> and the mysterious caller always requests the jazz standard Misty by Johnny Mathis. Can you sing Misty? I get misty over you. It's not the
2: movie that I'm thinking.
3: I'll give you a hint. The song title is also in the movie title. What year? 19, Did you say the song 1971. Title? The song title oh. is Misty. Did, oh, Misty well. by Johnny Mathis.
2: Have I seen this movie? Probably not. Then why are you asking if I'm listening? <laughs> Cuz you looked like you're on your phone. I wasn't on my phone. I was spacing out thinking of that one movie
3: about I the radio DJ. I want to
1: say Misty River, but that's Misty River. <laughs> I'm of it has nothing to do with DJ. Now, I will say
3: as a second hint, you're close because it involves somebody involved in Misty it. It involves somebody involved in Mystic River. Sean Penn? It's the di- same director. Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood made a movie about a radio DJ? That actually like set a mold for a lot of thrillers.
2: <sighs>
3: Justin, I
1: have not is seen yours. this movie, so I'm, I'm s- stuck. I could throw out words after Misty. <laughs> but I don't know the movie.
3: Okay, the movie is Play Misty for Me. Mm, never
1: 1971. Never. never saw it. Adding it to my list. It's a good one, folks. Oh. Nobody wins. Well, no, Justin I'll take the one. Justin
5: points. won.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Justin... I'll take the win. <laughs> Justin wins the Sea of Songs <laughs> quiz. <laughs> and that, my friends... Woo is the show. Follow us on social media at Cinema Possessed Pod where we announce next week's movie ahead of time. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at cinemapossessedpod at gmail.com. And if you want to get even more possessed, you can head on over to patreon.com slash slash cinemapossessedpod and unlock the cinema-possessed bonus materials. Those are our bi-monthly bonus episodes where we talk about all sorts of shit outside of our collection. New movies, movies we've never seen, blind spots, movies that Corey wants to show us that Justin and I are like, do we really want to watch that? But then she forces us to watch them.
2: Christmas movies. One's coming in December. We do
3: top five lists about all sorts of stuff. Soundtracks was the last one. Boy, that was a great episode. Guys, if you haven't, subscribed to the Patreon bonus materials. You're missing out, and you're not a true fan. You heard it. You're not a true fan of the show unless you subscribe to the Patreon bonus materials. Uh, Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Apple Podcasts. And tell your
2: friends about us,
3: please. Spotify, tell your friends, spread the word. We could use it, folks. We could use the good reviews. We could use the good word. We could use the new listeners. And uh, Justin, why don't you let the people know what movie we're going to be talking about next
4: week?
1: We're talking about the last movie ever made by the late Stanley Kubrick. <gasps> Eyes wide shut.
3: Eyes
1: wide shut, folks. I'm excited for this one. I haven't been this excited in a long time. We're all talk about
3: erotic.
1: <laughs> hey, well, we'll talk about it.
2: We'll discuss right. is it a Christmas
5: movie?
3: That's a question on everyone's mind. Listen to find out next week. Odd cinema possessed, and as always, folks, keep watching the movies you love, and stay possessed. Later,
1: see you later.
3: Mm,
4: See you next week. (laughs) (laughs)